We are studying the types of the Old Testament. And now for eight weeks, we've been looking at those types, all those things that point to Christ, and we'll give some more definition for what a type is in a moment. But think of some of the types we've already examined. Adam, the type of Christ, one who is the the federal head of a race, one who acts for others. We looked at the ark, the type of the one place to hide when the wrath of God is poured out. We saw Christ in the saga of Abraham and his son Isaac. And we saw the type of Christ Joseph, the rejected kinsman and future savior. And then we gazed upon the Passover lamb. We later studied the Old Testament prophet Jonah when swallowed by the great fish and then coming out three days later as a clear type of Jesus in his resurrection. We looked at Samson as a type of Christ. And tonight we will see manna as a type of Christ. Some reminders about types, they are prophetic. They are always pointing towards something in the new covenant. And they're divinely designed. Your, your response when we look at these types is, wow, what a neat coincidence. That should not be your response. Or what an interesting accident. But these are all these types are an integral part of the history of redemption. It is the Lord's sovereign rule of history and his infinitely exact knowledge of the future that makes typology possible. He knows what is to come, what person and what events are at the center of human history. And so the Lord is able to, to weave into history all manner of anticipations to teach his people about Christ long before those events come to pass. Without a With a true type, there is always a a clear point of resemblance between the type and its fulfillment, or the anti-type. No reaching or forcing needs to be done in order for this to be seen. Oftentimes, as we will see tonight, the New Testament simply tells us that something or someone was a type. Now, I want us to look at our Bibles. I want you to look at two texts tonight. Exodus 16, which Mr. Rios read and you're hearing a moment ago, and at John 6. And I want us to be reminded of the history of manna before we see its fulfillment in the antitype in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you some of the the important truths about Israel surrounding manna. As soon as Israel was delivered from Egyptian slavery, they began to complain. Israel complained about pursuing enemies in Exodus 14, so God provided victory. Israel complained in Exodus 15 about the lack of water, or more accurately, the bitter water of Marah. The Lord mercifully made the water sweet and drinkable and took them to an oasis. Immediately following the plagues, the Passover in the Red Sea came an outburst of thankful song in Exodus 15. But Israel quickly reverted back to their default setting, and they complained, as we see in Exodus 16, about hunger. And in this chapter, we're going to see God's provision for Israel's hunger, how the Lord fed his people. Let that that type stick like glue in your brain tonight. The, The issue of manna is God providing for his people's hunger. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. And tonight, we will take Jesus then in the New Testament, take a 40 year act of provision for that's what. Manna was. It was a 40-year daily act of provision. And Jesus will say, oh, the manna, that was a historical event, a miraculous provision, but it was a type, a foreshadowing of something far greater. Let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to open this word. 
Sovereign Lord, you've given us these texts by divine inspiration. And you have told us that they will be profitable for us, that they will profit us for doctrine, they will profit us for reproof, they will profit us for correction, and they will profit us for instruction in righteousness, that we might be complete and mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So take this word and press it home to our minds and hearts. We pray that you would keep all distractions far from us, and that by the hearing of the word, we might have deepened trust in Christ. And along with a deepened trust, strengthen our love to him and our dependence upon him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you're going to understand the antitype, you have to understand the type first. So look at Exodus 16 with me. Exodus 16. And I want you to notice how the whole saga of the manna begins. In the first three verses, after a few days at Elam, an oasis, enjoying pasture for their herds and clean water, the nation of Israel sets out once again for the promised land. Now I want you to notice one of the key words in Exodus 16. It is the word complaint. It's used seven times in Exodus 16. It could more literally be translated rebelled. In fact, in verse 3, you have the actual Uh, you have the actual script for Israel's complaint. They are treasonous words. Look at verse 3. The children of Israel said, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. The Israelites are expressing their deep-seated discontent that they didn't die with the Egyptians back there. In other words, they're saying to the Lord, we wish we hadn't been delivered, we wish we hadn't been saved, but we wish we had perished in the plagues. This is the first time they make the, if we'd only died in Egypt argument, but it won't be the last. We hear this over and over again from Israel. The Israelites complaining, by the way, began way back in Exodus 5 when they told Moses he was making their life too hard. They grumbled then at the Red Sea when they accused Moses of bringing them out to the desert to die. They grumbled at Marah because there was no sweet water to drink. (coughs) Now they're grumbling about lack of food. Unbelief, sedition, rebellion, and grumbling are becoming habitual for Israel. In fact, verse 2 informs us that this sin was so prevalent that it included the entire congregation. So here are two million complainers. Sometimes you think, why both of my kids are complaining. Moses and Aaron were listening to two million complainers at once. It's awful hard to send two million people to their bedroom. Well, Israel has been gone from Egypt for one month. We're told the time stamp in this chapter, beginning in verse (coughs) 1. And we know what date it is. And already they are engaging in some of the most amazing revisionist history. Look what they say to themselves in verse 3. They have convinced themselves that they sat and ate meat and bread until we were stuffed. Now, isn't it amazing how they've only been gone one month and they're already lying to themselves and changing history. They didn't look carefully at verse 3. They say, oh, that we died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and ate bread to the full. They never sat. They were servants. They were, they were serving their Egyptian masters. And this, this revision, this uh, retelling the story to make it seem better, gets more elaborate as time goes by. But the grumbling is actually much more wicked than we see at first. 
This time, they accuse Moses and Aaron of evil intent. Look at verse 3. They state that the, the devious plot of Moses and Aaron is to intentionally starve the whole nation to death. And they collectively fall into a horrible error. Look what they do in verse 3. They state that they know the motives of others. That's, that never works. It's never a good thing. When you say, you did this because, you have no idea of other people's motives. You barely know maybe a tiny bit of your own motives. But look at verse 3. What do they accuse Moses and Aaron of? You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. In other words, they are, they're questioning their motives. So let's stop for a moment and evaluate, because all of this builds up to our type. Are they really about to starve to death? Well, according to Exodus 12, they brought massive herds of livestock, of cattle and sheep, out with them. In the next chapter in Exodus 17, they talk about needing water for their livestock. Their complaint was premature, to say the least. Even if they don't want to slaughter some of their livestock, they could drink milk and make cheese. They've already forgotten. It's only been one month. They've already forgotten the beatings at the hand of their Egyptian slave masters, the murderous plot to kill their sons, the hard labor, the bondage, the misery, the exhaustion. And now their lack of food becomes a lack of faith. The satisfaction of their bellies was connected in their heart to their satisfaction with God. And what they're saying collectively, all two million, is if God doesn't satisfy my stomach with bread as soon as I want it, then my loyalty will shift to the next best thing, to whatever or whoever can satisfy my appetites. So God's response is astounding. The grace is so abundant. Look at verse 4 and 5 of Exodus 16. In the face of their complaining, instead of giving them what they deserve, the Lord promises to bless them. The next time somebody tries to tell you, there is no grace in the Old Testament. After you stop laughing, point them at this text. What the Israelites deserved, what they had earned in this moment was judgment. What they were given was kindness and blessing. Look at what the promise of God is in verse 4. To this complaining nation, he promises bread from heaven, six days per week. And no doubt, this is where the phrase originated that we pray every day in the Lord's Prayer for Matthew 6, asking the Lord to give us our daily bread. It's a historical, um, historical pointer back to bread from heaven. God specifically tells Moses here in verse 4 and 5 that his method for supplying the needs of the Israelite is a test. He says so in verse 4. He says, the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. The Lord is going to test collectively the faith and obedience of Israel. He's going to test their belief. They must believe that God will and can supply all their nutritional needs. He's going to test their obedience. They must obey his commands to go outside and get the manna daily and get a double portion on the day before the Sabbath and refrain from gathering on the Sabbath. They must restrain their natural tendency to gather up as much as was available in anticipation of a time when no gathering was possible. God's teaching them to trust him every day afresh. Now think about that. He's going to teach them a 40-year lesson. He's going to teach them every day to trust him 
every day anew. And this will humble them, for it will teach them their ongoing day-by-day dependence on the Lord. God is, is also teaching them in the giving of bread from heaven that it's easy for an omnipotent, sovereign God to make bread plentiful. Even in scarcity, even in the desert, God is teaching them that he would not have saved them from the destroyer at midnight and the armies of Pharaoh at the Red Sea, only to let them starve in the wilderness. In fact, God will sustain them on this diet for 40 years. Now, I want you to get a sense of the scope of this. When the Lord says, look at verse 4, and maybe you think, well, this was something that happened that was real neat one afternoon. No. Look carefully at the words. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. Now, let me do some numerics with you. Here are two million minimum Israelites in the desert. And according to the Israelite measures, six pints of manna was to be collected for every person. And no, this isn't a story problem. Now, that would be 12 million pints every day of manna. And just to understand how much that is, it would take 10 trains, each pulling 30 boxcars filled with manna every day to feed this multitude. Multiply that by 40 years and you see the incredible blessing God showered upon them. And so for the next 12,000 mornings, the Israelites would go gather miraculous bread from heaven. And then for 2,000 more mornings, they would refrain and rest. For those who, who try to assign some sort of naturalistic explanation to this, the text is, is quickly teaching us that it can't be explained as some sort of natural phenomena because listen to the, the cycle that happened every week. First of all, manna would rain from heaven for five days in a row, Tuesday through, or Monday through Saturday. And then there would be none on Saturdays, on the Sabbath. And then it would, there would be a double portion on the day before the Sabbath. And so you can't say this is somehow a naturalistic explanation. So notice then how the complainers are addressed once the Lord promises this. Look at verses 6 through 8. Moses and Aaron assert that the provision of food will be a powerful confirmation for their faith. They say in verse 6, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why is the Lord doing this? So that Israel will have intellectual, cognitive, epistemological certainty. The Lord is going to do this for 40 years, for 14,000 days. He's going to rain bread from heaven so that they will know that they've been delivered by Jehovah. This will clearly show them that the Exodus was no chance historical event. Moses and Aaron prophesied two specific provisions of food and the timing of them. There will be meat, that is quail in the morning, and bread, manna in the evening, and bread, which is manna in the morning. But what Moses and Aaron really want to talk about is the complaining problem of Israel. They stress that complaining, as is all complaining, is not really against Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 7 and 8. Moses and Aaron teach this to Israel. They're saying, you think you're just griping about us. You're complaining against the Lord. Now, parents, I want you to listen very carefully. And maybe, parents, as you speak to one another, if you have a habitual complainer, a whiner, a griper, uh, I have a lot of other adjectives. Uh, If you have someone like that in your house, 
The Israelites had wrongly attributed their circumstances to Moses and Aaron. But someone who's complaining is actually saying, here's the core of complaining. God, you're not a good God. You've not been gracious or generous to me. Instead of complaining, Christians everywhere in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, are called to put off complaining and put on silence. Because complaining is a God-provoking sin. There should be a, a sharp antithetical difference in the way that unbelievers deal with difficulties and trials in the way Christians do. Remember that, that poster child for unbelievers, Cain? And one of the first things we hear him say is, complaint. My punishment is far too great to bear. Lost men always complain bitterly. This is how you can spot them. The believer should be noticeable for his lack of complaining. The unbeliever, as we will see even in the New Testament in Jude 15 and 16, is known by his complaining. And we're told when Jesus comes to execute judgment, murmurs and complainers will be recipients of his wrath. In fact, Hebrews 12 tells us that continued <coughs> complaining leads to a root of bitterness. Believers instead long to, they strive to be conformed to the image of Christ who was silent under his trials. We're told in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. If there was ever a time for complaining, oh, the injustice, the pain, it would have been in Jesus' case. No complaints escaped his lips. Complaining completely undermines and negates your witness for Christ. Do you realize that, believer? When you grumble over the, the daily affairs of life, whether it's sitting for one stoplight too long on Woodruff Road or, or how long the microwave is taking to warm up your lunch, unbelievers carefully take note and think, well, she's just like me. Her gospel doesn't seem to have the power to make her joyful and content. And the unbeliever has every right to say, I thought you Calvinists believed that God ordains whatsoever things come to pass, so why are you complaining? Knowing the depths of our sin, we should be thankful that our trials are not more difficult. The complainer has not understood one of the most basic principles of the Christian life. All trials, afflictions, and troubles are meant to work for your good, according to Romans 8. God has promised it must be so. Trials are just like steel wool on a dirty pan. The more you rub and polish, the brighter it shines. And that's what trials do for the Christian. Will you complain in trials knowing that God is using that trial to sanctify you? Well, look at the Lord's provision in our text in Exodus 16. We're given all the details and how the Lord's promise came to pass in verses 13 and following. Here's the miracle. Now, again, you could grow weary of this miracle because it happens every day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day for 40 years. And we see in, in verses 13 through 21, the quail came that evening just as God promised enough to feed over 2 million people. They all came to the, the right place. It's like a scene out of the Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds. All the quails fly into the camp to, to be eaten. The quail was a one-evening supply of meat, not a reoccurring phenomenon. But the manna, the manna was intended to be a daily staple for 40 years. The next morning, the morning after the quail, the manna was there. 
All they had to do was walk outside their tent and start gathering. And what you have, and remember, all of this is building up to this is going to be the type that points to Christ. What you have there is a massive, collectible, permanent, at least for a generation, daily food source for two million people. Of course, you have some, according to the text, who gathered too much, planning to hoard and have some for the next day, either because they were lazy or they didn't believe there would actually be any the next day, or they were simply greedy. But the Lord foiled them in verse 20, and it has one of my favorite words in all of our translation in verse 20. Some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. That's a great term. Well, this is God's judgment on disobedience and unbelief and greed. Every night when they went to bed, their cupboards were bare. And they had to trust that God would provide, that he would keep his promise and supply all their needs. And there's a discipling aspect to this. For those who got up early, according to verse 13, and gathered, there would be plenty of manna. But if you waited until the sun was up, the manna would have melted away. It teaches the same principle that Proverbs 6 does, where it's expressly stated that poverty and want are the reward of those who sleep late. So those who are sluggards quickly learn, if they'll not work, neither shall they eat. Now for all those of you who are food junkies, and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, Jesus, but I want to know more about this manna. Scripture doesn't go into details except to say in verse 31, you'll notice in your text, except to say that it tasted like wafers made with honey. And so the best scholarly assessment of what manna was like, it's like the vanilla wafers that go in your banana pudding. Now, I love the wordplay in naming this stuff in verse 15. Israel said, what is it? Which is the Hebrew word manna. And so that was the Hebrew word. And every time they'd say manna, they're actually saying, what is it? So that's what it was named. What is it? Now, there's only one exception to this daily rule. Although the manna normally wouldn't keep until the next day, on the sixth day of the week, they were to collect twice as much. Why? The following day was the Sabbath. And after God had created the world in six days, he rested from all his work. And this was the pattern everywhere you find in Scripture. Always. One day in seven is to be for rest. And so that's why the Lord doesn't even give manna on the seventh day. Everyone gathers twice as much on the day before the Sabbath. And they come to Moses, look at verse 22, and say, "Uh, now what do we do? Moses tells them the next day is the Sabbath, a day for rest, a day free from their normal labor. He calls it a holy day, a set-apart day, different from all other days' day. The word Sabbath, Shabbat, means stoppage or rest. And amazingly enough, the manna gathered on the day before the Sabbath doesn't rot or spoil, we're told in verse 24. And when a few rebellious souls went out to gather manna on the Sabbath, they found none there. Try as they may, their work on the Sabbath turned out to be wholly unprofitable. Because God will not work on this day and supply food. He's resting. And by doing this, the Lord is is even in the wilderness, even in the midst of this other miracle, he's shining the spotlight on his moral law. His day, the Lord's day, he's spotlighting his gift of rest to men. Now notice the preservation of manna. Look at verse 32. The Lord commands Moses to preserve one ration of manna for future generations to see. This one small portion will have a didactic purpose and serve as a memorial, a a vivid reminder of God's provision for the Israelites in their time of need. 
And once again, the ordinary spoiling of manna after a day is suspended in this case. This is the jar of manna, this one portion that goes in the Ark of the Covenant as the testimony of God's faithfulness, along with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod to be kept in the Holy of Holies. So all of that is just set up. Now look at John chapter 6 and notice what the Lord Jesus teaches us. What Jesus teaches in John 6, 1,400 years later, he says that whole saga in Exodus 16 is one gigantic 40-year type. We are not overdoing typology here, for Jesus clearly tells us that he is the fulfillment of the type of manna. Look what he says in verse 33 through 35. And notice very carefully how Jesus takes the type and says, okay, you watch him? That's me. In verse 33, Jesus says, the bread of God is he, singular, a person, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am. I'm he. I'm the bread of life. I'm your manna. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And so let's ask the question, what, are the, what is the correspondence or actually the multiple correspondences between manna and Christ? Well, first, just as manna came down from heaven, it didn't grow up out of the ground. Just as manna came down from heaven, so did Christ. That's why Jesus refers to himself this way in John 6.33. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. The second point of correspondence, just as manna never failed or runs out, it was constant and all-sufficient. So Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us. You know, one of the most interesting assessments of manna during the whole 40 years in the wilderness, you never once, even though we hear Israel complaining about everything, we never hear one voice saying, uh, Moses and Aaron, we have a shortage there wasn't enough today because the manna never failed and never ran out. Just so, Christ never leaves or forsakes us. Another point of correspondence, just as manna was free, it was by grace. Israel didn't have to work to cultivate it. They did nothing. They came out of their tent and there it was. Just so, Christ and his benefits are all of grace. Another point of correspondence that shows the typology and the beauty of it. Just as manna was for everyone, you know, the, the Lord feeds everyone in Israel's camp the exact same thing. If you're a boy or a girl, an old man or an old woman or middle-aged, manna was for everyone. So Christ is for everyone and is available for anyone who will simply call on the name of the Lord. Another great point of correspondence. I want you to notice what you had to do to get manna, you had to stoop. You had to kneel down to pick up the manna. Just so sinners must humble themselves to feed on Christ. If you're going to feed on Christ, you have to lower yourself. I love the letter. It's my favorite of all of Samuel Rutherford's letters, one of my favorite Scottish Presbyterians of the 1600s. And he had a woman in his congregation who was notoriously arrogant, had a high self-esteem, was very proud. And Rutherford, in his letters, would usually sign his letters to this dear woman that he pastored. And he would say, remember, sister, stoop lower. 
Heaven's gate is a low entrance. And that's exactly what we see here. What did Israel have to do every day to pick up the manna? They had to stoop down. Another point of correspondence. Just as the old covenant Israelites had mandated memorials, we just saw in in Exodus 16 where Moses was commanded to put some manna in a jar to memorialize God's provision of manna. So too, we have a mandated memorial to memorialize God's provision of bread from heaven. We call it the Lord's Supper, where we remember Christ's work and we are thankful. But I have to tell you, in the, in the midst of all of these points of correspondence between manna and Christ, there something has to be said. Jesus is far better than manna. The manna only sustained their physical life, but feeding on this bread, on Christ, gives men eternal life. There's something better about Christ as well. The manna was only for the Jews. It was an ethnic blessing. It was only for two million people who were physical descendants of Abraham. But the bread of heaven, he's for every race and tribe and people and tongue. Another point of correspondence that shows the type and the anti-type and the fulfillment. Jesus is true bread and food indeed. He is the, the fulfillment of the type of manna. He's the living bread as opposed to stale, spoiling bread. Apart from eating this bread, you'll die an eternal death, Jesus says in verse 53 of John 6. The real question for you tonight so that this doesn't just remain a a lesson in biblical typology of connectedness between Old and New Covenant, is how can you eat this bread? How do you feed on Christ? How may you partake of this food that will give you eternal life? Just hearing about this bread will do you no good. Just as hearing about the manna would do Israel no good, they must do something. They must take and eat. And just so you... Hearing about Jesus, the bread who's come down from heaven, will do you no good if you don't eat. And so this is why Jesus in John 6 repeatedly states phrases like this. In John 6.35, he who comes to me, he who believes in me, he who believes in him may have eternal life. He who believes in me has eternal life. The reason why eating and believing are equated is both concepts point to a taking into one's innermost being. What Jesus is talking about when he says... Feed on him as the bread of heaven. He's talking about saving faith. Saving faith is clinging to Christ like a drowning man clings to a piece of driftwood. So I'd ask you tonight, is Christ what you're clinging to? Is he the bread that satisfies you? Or are you really just hungry for a bigger paycheck, a newer car, a remodel of the dining room? If so, it's my prayer tonight that you'll grow dissatisfied with these things and instead develop a soul hunger for true bread. I don't know what you think will satisfy your gnawing discontentment and desires, but only Jesus, the living bread, can. Have you discovered that without Christ you'll perish eternally? Feeding on Christ is the difference between living and dying, between being condemned and having life. This bread... The bread I'm speaking of, the living bread that's come down from heaven. This bread is suitable for anyone. It's suitable for old men and little girls and everyone else. No one eats this bread and discovers they're allergic or have an intolerance. This bread is priced right. And what is the price? 
In John 6, verse 27, Jesus says, This is the bread which the Son of Man will give you. This bread is free. The gospel of Christ, the bread who comes down from heaven, and all his benefits are held out to you now. Pardon for sins and an eternity of joy. Take this bread.